Hello and welcome to the Zero to Finals podcast. My name is Tom and in this episode I'm going to be talking to you about type 1 diabetes. If you want to follow along with written notes on this subject you can go to zerodefinals.com slash type 1 diabetes with a number 1 or you can check out the endocrinology section of the Zero to Finals medicine book. Let's get straight into it. To go through type 1 diabetes first we need to start with some basic physiology. Eating carbohydrates causes a rise in blood glucose levels. As the body uses these carbohydrates for energy, there's a fall in blood glucose levels, and the body ideally wants to keep the blood glucose concentration between 4.4 and 6.1 millimoles per litre. Insulin is a hormone produced by the pancreas that reduces blood sugar levels. It is produced by the beta cells in the islets of Langerhans in the pancreas, and it's an anabolic hormone, which means it's a building hormone. It's always present in small amounts in the blood, but it increases when the blood sugar levels rise, and the job of insulin is to reduce the blood sugar level. It does this in two ways. Firstly, it causes cells in the body to absorb glucose from the blood and use that glucose as fuel, and secondly, it causes the muscles and the liver cells to absorb glucose from the blood and store it as glycogen. Insulin is essential in letting cells take glucose out of the blood and use it as fuel. So without insulin, cells can't take that glucose out of the blood. Think of insulin as a specialist piece of equipment that lets the cells see the glucose and use it. Glucagon is a hormone that's also produced in the pancreas and the job of glucagon is to increase blood sugar levels. It's produced by the alpha cells in the islets of Langerhans in the pancreas and it's a catabolic hormone, meaning a breakdown hormone. It's released in response to low blood sugar levels and stress and it tells the liver to break down glycogen into glucose. This process is called glycogenolysis. It also tells the liver to convert proteins and fats into glucose and this process is called gluconeogenesis. So by doing this, it increases the blood sugar levels. Let's talk about ketogenesis. Ketogenesis occurs when there's insufficient glucose supply and the glycogen stores are exhausted in a situation like prolonged fasting. So the liver takes fatty acids and converts them into ketones. And ketones are water-soluble fatty acids that can be used as fuel. And they can cross the blood-brain barrier and the brain can use them as fuel unlike other fatty acids. Producing ketones is normal and it's not harmful in healthy patients who are under fasting conditions or on very low carbohydrate high fat diets. Ketone levels can be measured in the urine using a urine dipstick or they can be measured in the blood using a ketone meter. And people in ketosis have a characteristic acetone smell to their breath. Ketones are actually types of acid so we can call them ketone acids, and in normal patients they're buffered so that the blood does not become acidotic. And the kidney does this by producing bicarbonate, which absorbs some of those acids, and the blood stays at a normal pH. When there's underlying pathology like type 1 diabetes, the patients can go into extreme hyperglycemic ketosis, and this results in a metabolic acidosis from all the ketone acids, and that can be life-threatening. This is called diabetic ketoacidosis, and we're going to talk a lot about that later. 
Let's talk about type 1 diabetes. So type 1 diabetes is a disease where the pancreas stops being able to produce insulin. What causes the pancreas to stop producing insulin is quite unclear. There may be a genetic component and it may be triggered by certain viruses like the Coxsackie B virus and enterovirus. When there's no insulin being produced, the cells of the body can't take the glucose from the blood and use it as fuel. And therefore, the cells think that the body is being fasted and that there's no glucose supply. Meanwhile, the level of blood glucose is going to keep going up because it's not being used, and this causes hyperglycemia. So now we're going to go on to talk about the pathophysiology of diabetic ketoacidosis. And diabetic ketoacidosis occurs in type 1 diabetics, where the patient is not producing adequate insulin themselves, and they're not compensating for this by injecting adequate insulin as part of their treatment plan. So basically it occurs when the body does not have enough insulin to use and process the glucose. The main problems in diabetic ketoacidosis are ketoacidosis, dehydration and potassium imbalance and we're going to talk a lot about those. As the cells in the body have no fuel and they think they're being starved, they initiate the process of ketogenesis so that they have a usable fuel. Over time, the patient gets higher and higher levels of glucose and higher and higher levels of ketone acids. Initially, the kidney produces enough bicarbonate to counteract the ketone acids in the blood and maintains a normal pH, but over time, those ketone acids use up the bicarbonate and the blood starts to become acidotic. And this is called ketoacidosis. The hyperglycemia overwhelms the kidneys and the glucose starts to be filtered into the urine. The glucose in the urine draws water with it in a process called osmotic diuresis. So the water flows into the area of high glucose, so out of the blood into the urine. And this causes the patient to urinate a lot, which we call polyuria. This results in severe dehydration and the dehydration stimulates the thirst centre in the brain to tell the patient to drink lots of water, and this leads to excessive thirst, which we call polydipsia. So the patient has polyuria and polydipsia, and severe dehydration. Next we need to talk about potassium imbalance. So insulin is normally responsible for driving potassium into cells along with the glucose. So without the insulin... Potassium is not being added to and stored in cells. So the serum potassium can be high or normal because the kidneys are still balancing the blood potassium with the potassium excreted in the urine. However, in DKA, the total body potassium is low because no potassium is being stored in the cells. Therefore, when we start treatment with insulin, this insulin drives potassium from the blood into the cells and the patients can develop a severe hypokalemia, or low potassium, and this can lead to fatal arrhythmias. Now, DKA is a life-threatening medical emergency, and just to recap, the pathophysiology that we've talked about leads to hyperglycemia, dehydration, ketosis, metabolic acidosis with a low bicarbonate, and potassium imbalance in the body. And so the patient will therefore present with symptoms of these abnormalities. So they present with polyuria, polydipsia, nausea and vomiting, acetone smell to their breath, dehydration and hypotension, 
they'll have altered consciousness and they may have symptoms of an underlying trigger. So for example, they might have sepsis. The most dangerous aspects of DKA, like we've said, are dehydration, potassium imbalance and acidosis and these are what kill the patient. Therefore, the priority is fluid resuscitation to correct the dehydration, the electrolyte imbalance and the acidosis. After we've made sure fluid resuscitation is initiated, we can start an insulin infusion and this gets the cells to start taking up and using the glucose and stop producing ketones. So how do we diagnose DKA? Well, we need to be really clear about what the DKA criteria are and you need to check those with your local hospital guideline. But to diagnose DKA, you need three things. Firstly, hyperglycemia, so maybe a blood glucose level more than 11 millimoles per litre. Secondly, ketosis, so you need to check the blood ketones and the criteria might be above 3 millimoles per litre. And you need acidosis. So either the pH should be low, maybe less than 7.3, or the bicarbonate should be low. How do you treat DKA? Well, I have a handy mnemonic called FIGPIC, F-I-G-P-I-C-K. And this is how I remember how to treat DKA. But it's really important when you're treating DKA, make sure you follow your local protocols very carefully. So FIGPIC, F for fluids. So you want IV fluid resuscitation with normal saline to start with. So you might give one litre of saline stat, so straight away, and then four litres of saline with added potassium over the next 12 hours. I for insulin. So you need to add an insulin infusion, and this might be something like act rapid at 0.1 units per kilo per hour. And this is just a fixed rate insulin infusion. G for glucose, so you need to closely monitor the blood glucose and when the glucose falls below a certain level, for example 40 millimoles per litre, you can add a dextrose infusion to replace some of the glucose that the person has been losing. P is for potassium, so you want to really closely monitor the serum potassium, for example every 4 hours, and then correct the potassium as required. Usually if the potassium level is normal, you would add potassium to the IV fluids that you've been giving the patient. I is for infection, so you would treat any underlying triggers such as infection. C is for chart fluid balance, so you want to keep a really close eye on the patient's fluid balance, their input and output. And then K is for ketones, so you want to monitor the blood ketones to check when the patient has gone out of ketoacidosis. An alternative to monitoring the ketones is to monitor the bicarbonate. Two things to remember. Firstly, you want to establish the patient on their normal subcutaneous insulin regime prior to stopping the insulin and fluid infusion. And secondly, remember that as a general rule, potassium shouldn't be infused at a rate of more than 10 millimoles per hour because infusing potassium too quickly can lead to hyperkalemia and cardiac arrhythmias. So what's the long-term management of patients with type 1 diabetes? Well, patient education is essential. This is a long-term chronic condition that the patients can have for the rest of their life. And the monitoring and the treatment is relatively complex. So the patient really needs to engage with the condition and become a patient expert and fully understand what needs to happen. The long-term management involves a few components. Firstly, subcutaneous insulin regimes. 
Secondly, monitoring dietary carbohydrate intake and tailoring the insulin regime to that. Thirdly, monitoring blood sugar levels, usually on waking, at each meal and then before bedtime. And then monitoring for and managing any complications, so both short and long-term complications. Insulin is usually prescribed as a combination of background or long-acting insulin, given once a day or twice a day, and then short-acting insulin that's injected 30 minutes before the intake of carbohydrates, so at mealtimes. And this is called a basal bolus regime, the basal insulin being the long-acting one that works in the background, and the bolus being the short-acting insulin that's injected with meals. And insulin regimes are usually initiated and guided by a diabetic specialist. It's worth noting that injecting insulin into the same spot can cause a condition called lipodystrophy. And this is where the subcutaneous fat hardens. And the tissue in this area won't absorb insulin properly when there's further injections into this spot. So for this reason, patients should cycle their injection sites and if you find that the insulin doesn't seem to be working so well anymore, ask them about their injection site and then have a look for any lipodystrophy or hardening of fat in this area. What are the short-term complications? The short-term complications relate to the immediate insulin and blood glucose management. So there's two possible problems, hypoglycemia or low blood sugar and hyperglycemia or high blood sugar. Hyperglycemia is a low blood sugar level and most patients are aware of when they become hypoglycemic by the symptoms. However, there are some patients who are unaware until they're severely hypoglycemic, so this can be quite dangerous. Typical symptoms of hypoglycemia are things like tremor, sweating, irritability, dizziness and pallor, and more severe hyperglycemia will lead to reduced consciousness, coma and then death unless treated. Hypoglycemia needs to be treated with a combination of rapid acting glucose, so you can give them a drink of Lucozade, and they also need to take slower acting carbohydrates, such as biscuits or toast, for when that rapid acting glucose has been used up so that they don't have another hypo. The options for treating severe hypoglycemia are IV dextrose or intramuscular glucagon. Let's talk about hyperglycemia. So if a patient has hyperglycemia, but they're not in diabetic ketoacidosis, they may require their insulin dose to be increased. So patients will get to know their own individual response to insulin, and some people are more sensitive or resistant to insulin than others. They should be able to administer a dose to correct that hyperglycemia. So for example, they might learn that one unit of Novorapid reduces their sugar levels by around 4 millimoles. And by doing this, they can calculate how much they need to inject to bring their sugar levels back down. But it's worth being conscious that it can take a few hours for the insulin to take effect, so repeating doses could lead to hypoglycemia. And then of course, if they meet the criteria for DKA, then they need admission and treatment for that DKA. Next, we need to talk about the long-term complications. So chronic exposure to hyperglycemia causes damage to the endothelial cells of blood vessels. And this causes the blood vessels to become leaky, malfunctioning, and it prevents them from being able to regenerate. High levels of sugar in the blood also suppresses the immune system 
and provides a really nice environment for infectious organisms to thrive so they can have infectious complications as well. So what are the macrovascular complications or the large artery complications? Coronary artery disease and therefore ischemic heart disease is a major cause of death in diabetic patients. Peripheral vascular disease leading to peripheral ischemia causes really poor healing of the distal limbs, ulcers, and you can get diabetic foot. They can have strokes and they quite often develop hypertension as well. Microvascular complications are things like peripheral neuropathy, where the feet become numb and they can't feel as much there. Retinopathy, where the back of the eye is affected and they can't see as well. And then there's kidney disease, particularly something called glomerulus sclerosis. And then there's infection-related complications, such as urinary tract infections, pneumonia, skin and soft tissue infections, particularly in the feet, and then fungal infections, such as oral and vaginal candidiasis, or thrush. And all of these complications are related to exposure to a high level of glucose for a long time. So getting the glucose level under control and, and getting on top of the diabetes is really important to prevent these complications. That leads us on to the monitoring of diabetes. Let's talk about the HbA1c. And when we check the HbA1c, what we're counting is the glycated haemoglobin, which is how much glucose is attached to the haemoglobin molecule. And this is considered to reflect the average glucose level over the last three months. And the reason for this is that the red blood cells have a lifespan of around three to four months. And so it gives us an idea of how much those red blood cells or the haemoglobin in those red blood cells have been exposed to glucose over their lifetime. We measure it every three to six months in the diabetic clinic to track the progression of the patient's diabetes and to assess how effective our interventions are. And it requires a blood sample to be sent to the lab, usually in a red top EDTA bottle. Next, let's talk about capillary blood glucose levels. We can measure capillary blood glucose level with a little machine. We give a finger prick that causes a small blob of blood to appear on the patient's fingertip. And then we add this to a glucose meter. And that gives us an immediate result of what the capillary blood glucose is. And patients with type 1 and type 2 diabetes really rely on these machines for self-monitoring of their blood glucose levels to check how well their treatment is working and to make sure they don't have complications like hypo or hyperglycemia. Finally, let's talk about flash glucose monitoring. And this is systems like the Freestyle Libra system, which are coming out on the market now and are quite exciting for patients with diabetes. What these systems are is they use a sensor that attaches to the skin and measures the glucose level of the interstitial fluid. And the interstitial fluid glucose level lags about five minutes behind the blood glucose level. And what happens is this sensor sits on the skin and takes glucose readings at short intervals so you get a really good impression of what the glucose levels are doing over time. The user needs to use a reader and this is used to swipe over the sensor and then the reader displays the blood sugar level readings. And the sensor needs to be replaced on the skin every two weeks for the Freestyle Libra system. And it's quite expensive, and the NHS funding is only available in certain areas at the moment, but this might change in the future if it proves to be more cost-effective. It's worth remembering this five-minute delay behind blood glucose 
means that if you suspect there's hypoglycemia, then you still need to do a capillary blood glucose check.